episode 236, Sophie Rue, founder and CEO of Bloombox Design Labs. I think my biggest mistake was also uh, one of the most heartbreaking moments of my life. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Sophie, her company Bloombox, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraben.com slash mistake236. As always, thanks for listening. Well, hi, welcome back to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. Our guest today is Sophie Rue. She's a visionary Gen Z founder and CEO of Bloombox Design Labs, which is transforming education through innovation. We'll get to talk about that here today. Sophie's journey began long before her studies uh, at Stanford University, where she um, studies civil engineering and architecture. Um, she's taking some time to work uh, and really focus on the Bloom Box project, um, crafted from repurposed shipping containers. Um, she's helping and reshaping education in Malawi by crafting these Bloom Boxes and the learning environment. So we'll hear more about that directly um, here from Sophie. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's uh, uh, I'm excited to talk to you. It's a really um, fascinating story, you know, to to see some videos of what you've been working on, and it's uh, it's really um, really powerful, really inspiring. Um, but I'm going to start off with the the question that I ask everybody here. I know this isn't catching you off guard. Um, of, of the things that you've done in in your work with Bloombox or otherwise, what would you say is your favorite mistake? All right. Um, well, it's it's a bit of a long story, but uh, here it goes. Um, I I think my biggest mistake was also uh, one of the most heartbreaking moments of my life, uh, which happened uh, after the summer after grade ten, when we had just brought the first bloom box to Malawi. Um, and at this point, the bloom box had uh, we'd spent. Uh, half a year uh, building it out in my backyard. We'd shipped it across the world. Um, we'd gone through what seemed like every possible obstacle. We shipped it during a global shipping crisis. Um, we had to uh, convince customs officials to let us through. Um, and uh, we were in this moment of celebration when the bloom box was being driven um, it had crossed its final border and it was just being driven to the school where it was going to be installed and set up. Um, and what happened was uh, New Beginning Secondary School, where we put in the lab, um, was at the top of this hill uh, and and below was a highway. So um, the uh, truck bed, uh, that the, the truck that was taking the lab up the hill, uh, it was too large to make the turn. And so there had to be a transfer from this long flatbed truck to a small flatbed truck. 
Um, and so uh, night was falling and uh, this kind of rickety crane uh, showed up on the scene to make the transfer from one truck bed to the other. Um, and we were all kind of just uh, waiting with bated breath because the uh, the crane chain itself looked a little questionable uh, and the uh, the container was was lifted up by this crane um, and kind of in that moment uh, like, uh, you know, months of work, uh, my, my biggest hopes and dreams for this, like everyone's c- collaborative efforts, $80,000 worth of technology was kind of just dangling in midair and it was kind of wobbling back and forth like this. And um, in that moment, the crane chain snapped and the lab came smashing down, um, luckily onto the bed of the other truck, but um, it, it, it smashed oh, no. The bed and the front, the cab of the truck, uh, went up, and 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 we all were just standing there, um, in what was now a dark night on a busy highway, um, thinking that maybe we had lost everything. Um, so I guess I guess that was my biggest mistake, um, but it was also my favorite mistake. I think that's what this podcast is about, um, because I I hadn't accounted for for something important, um, and I'll get to that in a second. But what we ended up doing, um, was we needed, um. Uh, we needed to bring it up to, to, to the school still, um, but it was late. So we got some, um, some guards to watch the container uh, overnight. Uh, and then we, we came back the next morning and I was feeling pretty deflated and worried that everything might be over. Um, but uh, what happened was the whole community, um, they had come that night and they had watched us uh, kind of fail uh, miserably in that moment. Um, but they had all shown up bright and early first thing the next morning uh, to come and to help us uh, unload the container, to make multiple trips, um, to make it make it a reality. So uh, that day actually became a very joyful event um, and we got it up and running successfully after that. And I think mm. um, it just taught me a lot about how uh, none of this work would work without the community. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that makes it my favorite, even though it was pretty wow. devastating in the moment. Oh, my gosh. The ups and downs of the story. I, I don't mean quite literally the ups and downs with the crane <laughs> right. and the bloom box. Um, but what? Yeah, I mean, that that must have been a really heartwarming moment, a beautiful moment then when when people rallied to help that morning. It truly was. Uh, I, I think like some of my best memories are, are on the job site just because of how how fun and inspiring and exciting it is every minute. Yeah. And um, I and so for context, you know, first off, can, can you tell us uh, there's some elements of the story I want to dig into, but I, I could have maybe teed this up better to tell people I've seen videos about it. So I know what you're talking about. Um, tell everyone a little bit more about just the bloom box, the intent and the functionality that it delivers. Absolutely. Um, I think that uh, it's really cool to think about getting every kid, especially girls, access to uh, education around the world. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that keeps me up at night. And I guess um, the uh, the idea for this started with how could I design something here where I live in Vancouver um, and, and, and have it be a beautiful, high-functioning classroom um, for a high school in Malawi that I had fallen in love with um, earlier in my high school career. Um, so the bloom box itself is 
uh, a computer lab or maker space built out of uh, an upcycled shipping container with a retractable solar roof system and equipped with like state-of-the-art technology. So we've got 20 laptop computers connected to an off-grid server um, that has a huge uh, library of resources and then uh, lights, fans, projectors, mobile furniture, um, a, a, a teacher teacher desk and all the supplies needed to make it into a true maker space. Um, that's the bloom box. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's uh, it's a great project. And, and again, for context, just to make sure it's clear to people who are listening. And I mean this, I'm, I'm praising you for this, that Sophie is the youngest guest that I've had on the podcast here because you, you last year, that was your first year at Stanford. Yes, it was. Um, but yes, thanks for having me as the as the youngest guest. I mean, it's it's an honor to be here uh, alongside such such great uh, such a great celebration of very interesting people. I, I was listening to your podcast earlier and just loving every minute of it. Oh well, thank you. And um, this is Sophie's first podcast as a guest. You're doing a great job so far. So thank you for for <laughs> being here today. Um, all we can do is try, right? So, um, but. I wanted to ask, um, or I wanted to point out one other thing. Like I, I asked you about the functionality of the Bloom Box, and I don't know if you are familiar with um, Simon Sinek and some of his books. Yes, I am. So, uh, sort of like the title of his his book, you started with the why. I was asking sort of what is Bloom Box and how does it work. I, I appreciate that you started with the why and the mission. Um, so I was going to ask you, you know, what. What sparked your passion at a young age to, to provide opportunities um, in Africa, in Malawi? A long way from home in Vancouver, British Columbia, I should, I should add. This is true. Um, well, uh, I, I loved growing up in Vancouver. Um, for me, uh, it's a city that is a temperate rainforest, and I feel lucky to have grown up alongside forests and rain and, and to kind of be in that environment of growth. I was also really lucky to um, travel to Africa since I was little um, with my family um, and uh, also to go to all girls schools um, through junior and, and, and high school. Um, and I think that that sort of informed my uh, my worldview in many ways. And that combination has been really um, impactful to me. I've, I've always seen um, girls excelling in, in every in every field at school. Um, and so I think that absence of limits um, has informed kind of what I want to do in the future, which is to get every girl access to environments uh, like the ones I've had a chance to, to learn in. Um, I think uh, going back even further, um, my work in girls' education started when I was really little. Um, like when I was, was five years old, um, I raised money for the first time for uh, Buffalo Lely Children's Home in Cape Town. Um, and then growing up and realizing that the problem of girls' lack of access to education is um, extremely multifaceted. And so there's sort of like these different levels to it where um, at the first level, you need to address uh, basic needs of girls so that um, barriers between girls in school um, are eliminated. And then on the second level, you want to make sure that the education that girls have access to is of the highest possible quality. Um, so my early work um, was in water and sanitation. So I, I raised money uh, for uh, a few water wells in Malawi and also for a sanitary pad making machine. Um, and that was through sales of my artwork. 
then um, I guess that trip to Malawi um, to visit the water wells, I, I got to spend a bit of time at a high school there, which ended up being the site of the first bloom box. And that was the first time I realized like, okay, we've got brilliant girls in school. They have big dreams. But now how can we make sure that they have every resource that they need to fulfill their dreams? That's that's so that's so cool. And we think of the the bloom box. I mean, there's so many basics of life, like water, medical supplies that that are necessary. And and with the bloom box, if you can sort of try to paint a picture of um, the container and and there's solar power, computers. Is 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 it satellite internet access also, or what? Like what? what tell give us some of the tech details, I guess. Or I, I'd be curious to hear, even from the first bloom box, has that evolved? Absolutely. I love talking about this, um, especially because I, I want to be an architect and I'm studying engineering and design. And so um, it's been sort of like a little bit meta for me because I, I'm, I'm designing uh, design spaces and I, I kind of get to think about like like, like uh, for me, designing bloom boxes has been the best possible design education. Um, so I think uh, in, in a fundamental level, the first bloom box was a 20 foot shipping container um, and it had a, a stationary roof um, with solar power. Um, what's happened now um, is the lab is half the size. So it's a 10 by 10 foot shipping container. It's a high cube. Um, and it has a 3000 watt system. So it has six solar panels and those solar panels, um, are constantly, uh, soaking up the sunlight during the day. And at night they're being, uh, they're, they're, they're kind of sliding back inside and locking securely so that nobody will tamper with the panels at night. Um, and that solar power is coming into the inverter. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's that we've got a kind of a separation wall so that the, um, te- technical, um, upkeep of those solar panels and batteries happen separately from where the um, uh, learning supplies are stored. And then on this side, it's sort of designed to be an annex to existing classrooms. So these labs will be deployed in um, remote settings where there are classrooms. Um, And then it's a kiosk setup. So the computers are charged in there, um, mobile furniture is stored inside, and then it's um, distributed from from this kiosk. Um, And that the way that um, that is managed is through local leadership. Um, And this way, it's truly a complement to existing classrooms. and then on a technical side, so the um, the computers themselves, we have 20 laptop computers and they're um, charged uh, in a charge container um, by the solar panels, of course. Um, and they are connected to this server. It's called a Rachel server and it's an intranet. So it's off grid and it's full of, of resources like Khan Academy, YouTube, uh, TED Talks. Um, it's got uh, resources in Chichewa. Um, it's got textbooks for studying for national board exams. Um, and uh, that has proven to be a great solution. And so what, what we do is we're able to monitor both the solar usage and the computer usage from afar. And so Every month we check in with the teachers who give surveys to students about what kind of information they're missing and what they need. And we can remotely be updating the computers um, with uh, that information. And uh, ultimately, like you mentioned, satellite internet, that is my dream and my next step, um, which would be to connect to Starlink, which recently got approved in Malawi. Um, but we're not there yet. That'll be the next the next step. Yeah. Um this idea of the retractable solar panels at night to protect them or keep them safe. Was that 
part of version 1.0? Is that something that was sort of anticipated or discussed as a design requirement? Or is that, uh, was that a lesson learned from version 1.0? That's a, that's a really insightful question. Um, so what happened was um, we'd never considered um, making a mobile roof for the first lab. We have it set up as just a stationary cantilever roof. Um, but with the successful launch of that, um, the Ministry of Education of Malawi became interested. Um, and I, I had a, a meeting with them where I set up my proposal of how we could uh, scale these labs. And they brought up the interesting point that um, a lot of uh, schools in Malawi are not in, in, the, in the big cities. They're in rural and remote areas. So the first lab we put in was in Blantyre, which is a bustling, bright city. Um, but 80% of Malawi is off the power grid, and it's in um, remote and austere settings. So that, uh, the, the Ministry of Education wanted uh, to scale this project to 70 more schools um, in the next five years at that time that we had talked but that meant that I had to think about how we could get these labs to those environments. Um, so that kind of forced us to go back to the drawing board. And so the roof system was born from there because it's low profile enough to just stack onto um, the truck bed and then just be shipped, uh, driven to, to these austere environments that kind of a stationary roof would not have been able to do. Yeah. Um, hopefully... Gosh, have, have there been any problems or incidents with the bloom boxes being um, damaged, um, vandalized in, in any way? Or have the communities rallied around the opportunity and like we need to you know, keep these bloom boxes protected and available? Yeah, I, we have been really lucky um, to have uh, to have strong connections um, and to also um, have incredible uh, local leadership. So the the first uh, the director of the school where the first bloom box was installed, um, he's one of my great friends now. We've been working together. He's become our Malawi team lead, Peter Koya. Um, and so he'll go and look for sites that would work and then he'll establish a connection with the director of the school of the next potential site. And from there, the community does rally around. So a local leadership team um, is assembled. A group of teachers is trained to use the computers and to be able to teach them, uh, teach with them in their classrooms. Um, there's a security team that watches the labs all the time. Um, and we have not run into any problems that way. Um, this past summer, we installed a bloom box at Zaleka Refugee Camp, which is the biggest refugee camp um, in Malawi. Um, and it was it's it's different. It's different than placing it at a high school um, in a big city. Um, and uh, just you know, time and time again, I am amazed and humbled by how much people step up to the challenge to protect these labs because uh, they want to protect their kids. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, with this mission of providing, you know, STEAM education for girls, you hope you never run across people who don't agree with that mission. Right, right. Um, so I think it just goes to show, I mean, you know, there, there's the tech challenge and the design challenge and the iterations. But like one thing that seems fascinating to me about the project and, and, and your leadership of it is it's beyond a tech challenge. Um, there's the the financial challenge, and, and you mentioned um, selling artwork. Tell us a little bit more about that, and and you know the idea you mentioned early on uh, in in the episode selling art 
for other projects? Like, give us a glimpse into, you know, tell, tell us about the art. I know we're, we're for most people an audio platform here. So I'm going to ask you to maybe just, you know, kind of describe what type of art. Of course. I love, I love the way you frame that question um, because I think it is um, not a problem that you can address in, in one way directly. And that's why um, I've always been interested in architecture because um, I was never like a genius at one thing specifically. Um, I've always loved to do a lot of different things. Like um, I, I, I love math and science, but I also do love art. Um, and so I kind of saw that in that combination in architecture. Um, but I also think what you were mentioning about there being a humanist side um, too, I think that's that's at the core of architecture as well, which is that we design things that affect people's lives in a real way. Um, and that is a huge responsibility. Um, so it's important to be thoughtful and to um, consider um, the people that, that we do this work for uh, above all else. Um, on the my, my education right now has been uh, mostly prerequisites for these engineering and architecture classes. So it's been very physics and math based, um, but I've always loved art. Um, so I launched the social enterprise when I was in um, seventh or eighth grade um, called Sparkly and Smart um, <laughs> as, a, as a dedication to the sparkly and smart girls that will hopefully benefit from sales of art. Um, and what it is, is it's a collection of kind of these uh, watercolor uh, art pieces. They're sort of, uh, I, I, <laughs> I think they can only be described as whimsical, um, but they're, they're uh, usually funny animals um, with, with puns or nice, nice messages. I love doing fonts, so they're kind of, there's bright lettering. Um, and uh, uh, my mom and I uh, figured out a way to print them onto greeting cards and tea towels and notebooks, and uh, uh, we sold them at craft fairs. It was it was pretty incredible. Um, my mom and I spent most weekends uh, leading up to Christmas throughout all of high school standing behind uh, a craft fair booth, and I would sell my art and tell people about uh, why girls' education is so important. And through that, I was lucky enough to raise enough money to support three wells, sanitary pad making machine, um, and now three bloom boxes. And you're still selling art. I know this is a website, sparklyandsmart.com. You want to help support Bloombox and other, whatever other, I don't, I shouldn't say other initiatives. Bloombox is a huge initiative. So I'm not trying to push you into more, but if people <laughs> want to support Bloombox, they can go and buy art even now. That would be incredible. I recently launched an Etsy, um, called sparkly and smart as well. Um, oh. Thank you. Um, and then, you know, I think one other kind of humanistic aspect, people side of this whole project is building a team. You're not doing this alone. Um, people who were helping you in, in initially in, in Canada, people who continue to help you in Malawi. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, finding and recruiting a team, getting support there in Africa. Absolutely. Um yeah, I mean, when I started this, when I had the first idea for it, um, I was in 10th grade. I, I was not an architect, not a 
especially not a sustainable development architect. Um, I didn't have any experience as a as a ca- carpenter uh, or even an organizer. Um, so what I did do and what I could do was ask a lot of questions. Um, I, I I tried. It's not easy for me. Um, I get I get super nervous, but I, I tried to be brave because it was it was a bigger mission. Uh, it was bigger than me um, to ask people for help. Um, and uh, it's pretty incredible that uh, when people really believe in an idea, uh, they'll bring their best abilities um, in any way they can to make that happen. Um, so I guess the first at the beginning, the core team um, started with uh, me uh, telling my ideas to my mom and, and drafting, uh, drafting um, floor plans. And she, she's she's my biggest cheerleader and supporter um, from there. Um, I have a carpenter friend, Jan, um, who actually uh, helped build our house, um, who who then taught me about construction. Um, We started building up the lab, um, got involved with a a solar team in Vancouver. Um, That was great. And and all the while communicating with um, leaders in Malawi, who um, I had known and and built a friendship with through my visit through Waterwells for Africa um, the year prior. Um, And then from there, I guess... Um, the core team grew in Malawi the first time we deployed. They became the team that would come out to the next two deployments. Um, and uh, we have such a fun time building on site. Um, and then uh, at kind of a separate level from construction, there are the teams that manufacture our roof, man- uh, modify the container. Um, so what happened, I guess I should say, after the first uh, launch, I realized I needed to cut costs. So the way that I did that was no longer um, did we ship the container from North America to Africa. Um, we built everything within the South African development community. So with South Africa and Malawi, and that way we're employing local people all along the way and creating these micro economies with people working on the box until its uh, final installation. So um, that means that now my team is actually, I think, 85% of my team members are in Africa. Um, uh, And that includes advisors from other projects I've worked on, as well as engineers, um, uh, mechatronics engineers specifically, um, and uh, uh, people that have come in to help since the beginning and have really shown up time and time again. Um, Leaders in government policy, um, as well as education, um, kind of all the places, like, uh, I guess I should say that um, at this point, I, I think that my journey in sustainable global development has been going on for a little while now. And, and everything I know is, is, is because of because of my team. Um, I'm really lucky that way. I don't think um, I think what it is, I guess, going back to your question um, is is these people are all there for the potential of the girls that they know exists. And I'm just a facilitator. I, it's a fascinating um, detail about some of the evolution. And you said the, the need to reduce cost, um, building locally in, in Africa, there's interesting supply chain um, challenges there. And, and one thing I, I thought was great on the Bloombox website is that it's it's not just about the box or the building of the box or the use of the box, but really like the end-to-end design and installation process um, how, how did you come to realize, you know, you really seem to be, de- be demonstrating that you learned it's not just the box, it's it's the whole um, end flow. How, how did you learn that or did somebody help you look at it that way? 
Yeah, I, I love what you're getting at here. Um, I think, well, I've, I've always, because uh, I've been working uh, on projects in Africa um, for a while, I've, I've learned that um, it's so much more than implementation. Um, you, you must have um, leadership to ensure longevity and sustainability of projects. Um, that's the number one thing. And I think part of that, um, knowing, like having that value and, uh, and knowing that this would be a long-term thing is also a reminder that we have to keep learning. So um, I guess in high school, I learned about the design thinking process, um, which is an iterative process. It's a, it's a circle. Uh, so as you were saying, like, it's not just end to end, it repeats. So, you, you, you know, you empathize with a problem, um, you have an idea, you start to build prototypes and you test your prototypes and then, you know, you install them and, and you try them out and I guess that was Bloombox 1.0 and um, we could have said that's you know that's great um, we did it but instead uh, and also because everyone on the team just fell in love with the process we wanted to make sure that it was the best it could be so that means following up learning what they need better for example um, we hadn't considered that um, we would need a wheelchair ramp um, so we built one and put that in or that the foundation was too high off the ground from the basketball court so I did a little sketch up model for uh, these these stairs that come down to the basketball court and now um, that's a place where kids hang out and it's just integrated into the campus which is beautiful and then bigger things like um, as we talked about the roof so that's that's the iteration where it goes right back to the drawing board and you have to start again um, and I, I love that process. I think that um, it means that the bloom box design will never um, be truly done, but it'll constantly, um, constantly improve from every direction, from student feedback, from a technical perspective. Um, and I, I think that's just a symbol of, 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 of growth. Um, and yeah. I think I'm, I'm growing with it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Ne- never truly done. And, you know, there's, there's opportunity for continued innovation, continued improvement and, um, yeah, you know, I think um, you're making me reflect on like what a great opportunity to learn about design thinking in high school. Like I'm old enough, design thinking was not a methodology <laughs> when I was in mm-hmm. high school. Um, I know a little bit about, I know enough about design thinking to be uh, dangerous, as they say. But um, it seems like one one big part of it is what you learn, almost more of like an anthropologist of observing people and their needs or observing their use of the bloom box. Do, do I, do I have that right in my recollection of design? Yeah, thinking? I love what you're saying. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, and, and, and you are not too old. I, I, I it's, it's, it was, it was just coming into high school as I was leaving. So <laughs> I, I am also new, new to the, to the idea. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot about observation. Um, and I think about architecture sometimes as like, um, such a privilege because, um, you know, we build this scale model and then you get to, you know, just manipulate uh, people moving through space and, and kind of play with it that way. And like, what an honor that is, because um, then there will be people in your space, you know, and, and, and you get to make those decisions. So you can't make them lightly. And so I think a lot of that comes from like observation and learning from people and how they interact. And that's something that I really want to get better at. Yeah. And so right now you're you're taking a gap quarter or a gap year from Stanford? Oh, gap quarter. Although every day it gets a little bit more enticing to take a gap year. Um, but I wasn't I, trying I, to push you to that. I was <laughs> No, it's fine. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm taking a gap quarter from Stanford. Um, 
And it's weird because I, I feel closer to Stanford than, than, than I even did uh, last year at this time. And I think, um, I think what happened was um, high school was amazing. And I'd always dreamed of going to Stanford because for me, it was this place of like the, the smartest and most interesting people come together to solve the most impossible problems. And um, I got there and it was like even better than that. Like, um, Not a I, mistake. <laughs> right? Um, and it sort of like it um it gave me this this feeling that that any like oh, this is so cliche but that that um you can that you can do it like if you have an idea um and you work hard enough um there are people that are going to want you to want your idea to succeed um especially um in in the field of design i think that's so huge at stanford um and i love that architecture is incorporated with engineering um so anyways i i'm taking this gap um not to not to get far away from it but um to refine my focus um and also to make sure that bloombox is able to continue to survive um and when i return uh i think i have this clarity about what i want to do what what departments i want to be a part of and um uh, I think I'm really lucky to to have a, a direction and a, and a purpose, and also a school that um, can can supplement that um, at a very high level. Yeah. Well, once you get past those engineering fundamentals, I mean, there's so many opportunities. It seems at Stanford to learn uh, not only more about design thinking, but entrepreneurship and startups. You know, formal. I, I imagine uh, were you able to tap into even informal ways of learning about this in your first year. Yes, for sure. Um, I was able to be part of a business competition at school. Uh, it was like called the one hundred thousand dollars startup challenge, and um, I I found myself in the like echoey basement of the uh, one of the engineering buildings, uh, waiting for my chance to uh, to go in the room and, and present my pitch. Um, and at that point, now I'm formed as a public benefit company. Um, so that has its own challenges, uh, running a, a new, a new business, new small business. Um, but at the time, um, I wasn't that I was a social enterprise, um, but I was sort of pitching an idea that had no return on investment except for, uh, kids doing cool things after they graduate. Um, and that's a bit of a hard sell, especially when um, the kids I was up against were um, grad students researching, you know, the next big uh, Fortune 500 solution. Um, and I also, so actually I did well uh, in, in that competition. And, and that was really cool for me because it was a reminder that I was at a school where um, business is about more than uh, just uh, money necessarily. It's about um, creative approaches to problems. Uh, so that was a really cool thing. I'm a Peak Fellow, um, which is in the Stanford Technology Ventures program. Um, I've gotten to spend a lot of time in the maker spaces, uh, which I just think is like just hardcore and cool to just, you know, be welding and watching my, my friends make cool projects. So I've glimpsed it and um, I can't wait to be a part of it again soon. Yeah. I mean, longer term for Bloombox, um, I'm curious, setting it up as, what was, what was some of the thought process around setting it up as a social benefit corporation versus a not-for-profit? Yeah, good point. Um, so I guess as we were talking about with um, the idea that um, development projects must be sustainable to thrive, we talked about that from like a human perspective, but I think um, also f from a business side, um, I need to somehow have a way to 
um, keep doing this for a long time. If I want to meet the um, Ministry of Education's target um, of uh, X number of schools, let's say we have uh, 67 left to do, um, that funding needs to come from somewhere. And it's not necessarily going to come from the government. Um, so I've had to think about creative ways to, to do this. Um, one thing would be to sell uh, roof design, the, not the design, the, the, the roof uh, uh, commercially to potentially like construction applications, really anywhere that you need off-grid power, um, the Bloombox roof can bring that to you at a, a you know high level with the with the creative uh, design. Um, so that that's one thing. The other thing um, is to run it as a business um, so that we can have an arm that is um, installing bloom boxes for free and an arm that's making money to sustain that commercially. Um, and then I, I've also thought a little bit about, um, well, I've thought about it a lot, but I don't know if it's possible at this moment, um, is this idea of, of a micro economy surrounding a bloom box. So we talked about um, connecting to Starlink in the future, potentially. Um, but there's this idea that if the bloom box uh, exists at a school um, for free and, and students access um, the racial server data and have um, access to computers, then potentially the, the neighborhood and the catchment of the, of the school could um, pay small monthly fees to access the internet. Um, and the bloom box is that hub. And then over let's say, I think it would take like 10 years or whatever, um, you suddenly uh, pay off your community's bloom box. Um, and at all the while, people are connected to the internet. And I think that is just so exciting to me. I think that when people have, um, you know, a phone that connects to the internet, it, the, the possibilities are, are then limitless. And, and I want to be part of that, that future. And you're helping create that future, Sophie, you know, it's really, um, I, I'm, I'm so glad that I, I got exposed to the work that you're doing. Um, I'm, I'm glad that PR firm reached out and, um, you know, shared your story and, and created the opportunity for the interview here. It's going to be exciting to see where you and Bloombox um, go. Um, one other question, though, I want to come back to your story. I want to ask this, you know, gently, I'm not you know, not to be critical, but um, I'm just curious if you recall like conversations you and your team had after the chain broke, because, you know, you or others had identified, I don't, you know, I don't know about that chain. And, you know, there's times in workplaces or life where like, we wonder like, should I speak up about this? I don't want to, uh, I don't know if that's going to offend somebody. Maybe I'm wrong. And like, you know, sp that, that choice of speaking up or not speaking up uh, what well, you know, was the conversation afterwards about like, oh, I wish we had said something or I wish we had asked before we let them lift it? That's a really good point. I think it takes a lot of courage to speak up when you think something is going wrong. And um, I often uh, try to do that in my daily life. Um, but another thing about uh, initiatives like this is sometimes you got to take leaps of faith, um, especially if um, you've controlled everything you can. Um, if, if you've accounted for everything in your power, you've got to hand off the trust sometimes. Um, and uh, I've been pleasantly surprised, you know, nine times out of ten. Um, and I think our whole team knew that this had to happen. This transfer from one truck to the other had to happen to get it to the school. Um, and so in this moment, um, we made a decision to um, to trust and um I think nobody could have prepared for um, just, you know, a technical, a technical detail um, 
like a rusty chain. Um, but I think what matters was our, was our response. Um, and I think, um, yeah, going forward, you're right. It's important to be thoughtful and to speak up. Um, but I think also it's finding, it's finding that balance of, of also, um, handing over control sometimes. And that, yeah, I, I found it works out more often than not. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And, you know, I'm glad that you found the positive takeaways and, and, and lessons learned. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're doing so much and learning so much at, at a young age. So I really, um, appreciate that, uh, really respect what you're doing and, um, appreciate you for coming on and sharing your story and, and having a conversation about it, Sophie. Thank you. I appreciate being here and, and thanks for everything that you do to, um, to, to, to support entrepreneurs at every stage of their journey. Um, Thank you for that. I try and we'll, we'll keep at it here on the podcast. So again, we've been joined today, Sophie Rue, a founder and CEO of Bloombox Design Labs. Um, you can go to bloomboxdesignlabs.com. I'll put links in the show notes and I um, encourage you to go learn more about Sophie and what she's doing. So thank you, really. Thank you again. This is great. Thank you, Mark. Well, thanks again to Sophie for being our guest today. To learn more about her, Bloombox Design Labs, Sparkly and Smart, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake236. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.